I want you to slowly close your eyes and imagine for a moment you're going blind. The world around you is closing over. Now imagine you live in a country that isn't rich enough to provide even the basic services required for the needs of the blind. How would you get around? How would you go to school or work? How would you feed yourself and your family? I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, supported by Mobilisation Lab. They connect social change campaigners with what works. Check them out at moblab.io. Today on Changemakers, the remarkable story of a surgeon who has personally operated on thousands of people, saving each and every one of them from a life of darkness and hardship. And the kicker is, that's not even his greatest achievement. Let's go. When he was about seven years old, Tran Van Jap was playing with some kids in his village in Vietnam. They were mucking around, as seven-year-olds do. One of the kids accidentally throw a piece of glass, basically, to my eyes, and that is what caused the problems. He was rushed to hospital, but it was no good. So my right, the right eyes, I could not see at all. Still, his parents did not give up. I was very lucky to have my family at the time to support me through my eye injury, take me from hospital to hospital, but even then it wasn't enough. Being blind in one eye didn't just make it hard for Jap to play with his friends. It made it impossible to go to school. His school was simply not equipped to deal with a child who was half-blind. I didn't go to school for more than a year. So, so this was clearly going to threaten your future, having this eye injury? It's not the only the physical pain and incapability that I was facing at the time. It's also the psychological distortions that I have to face to go to school. One day, a year after the accident had happened, Jap's father took him to a popular local hospital, the best hospital in his entire region. If anyone was going to be able to help Jap, they would be here. The hospital said there was nothing they could do. So my parents, my dad in particular, took me to um, Hanoi to seek further help. There, they went to a makeshift eye clinic. There was a long line of children waiting to have their eyes examined. One of the doctors was a foreign-looking man with a big bushy mop of silver hair. And this is when we stumble across Dr. Hollows, when he was with other doctors at a time examining other children's eyes. Dr. Hollows, Dr. Fred Hollows. So uh, my dad pushes me towards the line. Unfortunately, the hospital had limited resources. Their policy was they couldn't just operate on every poor child who turned up half-blind, even if it was taking him out of school and affecting his whole future. So according to policy at the time, there was only one older person and one younger person allowed to get the free surgery for their eyes at a time. Jap's father put Jap's name down, hoping to be the lucky pick. He wasn't. 
Then, in a stroke of incredible luck for Giap, the boy who'd been selected for surgery didn't want to go through with it. Even though I wasn't the first one to be chosen, the first kid forfeited because he was scared. Giap's dad leapt into action, pressing the doctors to select his son instead. What sort of cruel lottery was it that Giap's future could hinge on an arbitrary decision by a doctor, enabled only by another child's reluctance to go through with a medical procedure? And that's when I finally met and, you know, talked to Dr. Hollows. And he was kind, and I remember perfectly everything happened that day. How his eyes looked at me, and how scared I was, because I never really come in contact with any foreigners before. That was the guy that saved my life. Jap's eyesight was restored. He returned to school and became a diligent student. From his perspective, he'd been given a second chance, and he wasn't going to waste it. But in places where resources are sparse, for every happy story, there are many more that don't have a fairy tale ending. Take, for instance, Sanduk Root, who was 15 and living in the foothills of Nepal when his sister became ill with tuberculosis. Although it was treatable, her family couldn't afford the medicines required. The doctor said there was nothing they could do. Meanwhile, Sanduk's father had noticed that he was a bright kid and arranged for him to go to the local school. But it wasn't just around the corner. I was somebody uh, who... I was sent, uh, you know, from my village uh, to the school that um, I went to was almost about 15 days' walk. You know, real 15 days' walk. There were no schools in between, and uh, so that's where I went. A 15-day walk. That was his local school. For six months, his sister convalesced, but just as they thought she was getting better, things took a turn for the worst. Sanduk came home. I saw her pretty much very thin and uh, catch really, you know. And uh, uh, so I was, it was a very sad moment for me, very sad to see her uh, in a condition like that. Within months, she was dead. My father sent me to school and in a small um, boarding school. And uh, so I uh, managed to have this toughness in me right from uh, very early on. And uh, didn't really uh, get that, that fatherly or motherly uh, uh, closeness. And whatever I got in terms of family was uh, the closeness and, and sentimental relationship that I had with my sister. And um, I'm, I, that, that was something very strong bond. And, uh, you know, the, her death uh, was uh, a, a big blow, big blow for me. The total lack of adequate medicine had taken from him his sister. It really hit me very hard for a few months. And then I started really thinking very hard uh, and uh, saying that maybe this is the uh, branch, this is the future that uh, is inviting me to uh, probably take up medicine and see whether I can be useful to uh, many of these people. you know, people who need uh, medical treatment in my country. So that was really an inspiration that uh, made me take medicine. And that was when Sanduk Root, a bright 15-year-old Nepalese boy, decided to become a doctor. Of course, nothing is straightforward. Unfortunately, almost immediately, Sanduk's plan ran into trouble. First off, his schooling got cut short 
thanks to a war. I couldn't complete school there uh, because uh, India and China started having war in the 1960s and all the schools were shut down. Eventually, Sanduk got a scholarship to complete his education in another school. But when he announced he wanted to go to medical school, there was just one small problem. Nepal didn't have any medical school. And so instead he travelled to India and did a medical degree and then returned to Nepal. Nepal was one of the first developing countries to have a proper statistics on the magnitude and distribution of blindness. And I was very lucky to be uh, part of a junior uh, medical officer at that time. And I had an opportunity to go into very remote areas, accompanying senior ophthalmologists. And uh, this was in one of those uh, uh, trips uh, that I accompanied one of the senior ophthalmologists to the west of Nepal, where uh, in one particular rural surgical setup, uh, I saw him operating about four uh, children in the family, you know, of cataracts, congenital cataracts. And uh, that evening, uh, you know, after the after everything was finished, I started really thinking, you know, is this a branch where in such a short time you can make difference to so many people's life? By now, Sanduk was a doctor specialising in eye care, completing the final stages of his training through a series of residencies. And in Nepal, his skills were in high demand. So prevalence of blindness was about 1%. Oh, my God. Yeah, and... Uh, the interest that I had was right from the beginning on cataracts. For those who don't know, and I didn't when I began this story, cataracts form when the normal lens in your eye becomes cloudy. It's a bit like the way a car windscreen fogs up on a cold morning. The only way to deal with it is to remove the lens and replace it with an artificial intraocular lens. Although it sounds icky, it's actually a simple procedure, but the replacement lenses were about $150 to $200 at the time. In places like Nepal, they couldn't afford the intraocular lens and weren't trained to do the surgery. So instead, they just removed the cataract by removing the eye's entire natural lens, with the result that patients ended up ridiculously farsighted. Aware that this was a problem, authorities had begun collecting detailed statistics in Nepal, and what it showed was shocking. And the statistics told us that the type of cataract surgery done those days not only Nepal, but all the developing countries, and even in some of the developed countries and rural areas, were taking the cataract out in total, and that makes the person very long-sighted. And if you remove the cataract only, uh, you can barely count fingers in front of you. The result was that patients had to wear ridiculously thick glasses just to see, and even then, a simple task like walking around was difficult. As he travelled around, more than 60% of the cataract patients that Dr Ruit visited had abandoned their glasses. The surgery was essentially useless for them. But that wasn't the only problem. 5% cause of blindness was bad cataract surgery. Jeepers. Bad cataract surgery. So the doctors were part um, of the problem? Yes, yes. It wasn't like that because uh, cataract surgery were those days done without magnification. We could just, you know, we were doing it with uh, reading glasses oh, and wow. torchlights. You know, it was that. So basically only 30% of cataract surgery in the global south restored sight, whereas in the west, pretty much every procedure restored sight. You're just making, giving them navigational vision, that's all. So uh, that was the situation in mid-80s. 
So inspired by the surgeon who guided him through his residency, Dr. Ruit started treating patients. So when you first started working as an eye surgeon, how many people did you treat per year? Uh, as a young doctor, uh, uh, I would say I was pretty aggressive and uh, uh, used to see about, uh, I would say, about 100 patients a day. Oh, my God. A day? Yeah, a day. Yeah. And uh, maybe, uh, you know, those days, like again, uh, we were all doing um, uh, the surgery that was uh, that established uh, those days, you know, and uh, doing about uh, 20, 25 cataracts per day. But even with all that surgery, they still couldn't afford the intraocular lenses that would make it so much more effective. Dr. Ruit said he was troubled but didn't know what to do. I was trying to talk to you about uh, all the frustrations and uh, barriers uh, of uh, not being able to provide the kind of surgery that I've heard about, you know, and for these people, why these people are having uh, so much unsuccessful, uh, they are not seeing after the surgeries and uh, what are the barriers and things like that. It's constantly intriguing my mind. Then one day, he was sitting having a cup of tea with a friend of his who happened to be the head of the World Health Organization in Nepal. The friend mentioned he was about to go and pick up someone from the airport, a doctor. So he said... Uh, if you're free, why don't you come with me? So they head to the airport. Normally when uh, we go uh, and we have this, we used to have this thing in our mind that a World Health Organization consultant, you know, normally comes uh, pretty much uh, dressed up in uh, suit and ties. And probably those days the fashion was to carry a little briefcase in the hand. And, uh, and uh, then there was nobody uh, that we could find uh, was uh, sort of, uh, fitting into our description. Remember, this was the mid-80s. There were no mobile phones. They assumed the man they were looking for had missed his connection. So as we were about to leave and uh, we, get a, we get somebody shouting at us, uh, are you Fox looking for me, you know? So we turned around and looked at this uh, uh, gentleman uh, looking uh, uh, pretty, you know, sort of rough, and finally, they said, I'm uh, Professor Fred Hollows, uh, you know, and so that's how we met. Professor Fred Hollows. If you come from Australia like me, you'll know who he is. He was a larger-than-life character, known as a prodigious drinker and extraordinary raconteur, as well as a prolific eye surgeon. Like Dr Ruitt, Professor Hollows had fallen in love with the transformative possibilities of eye surgery, especially for the poor. He ran his own eye clinic in Sydney, and had scrambled the resources together to create mobile eye clinics throughout the outback and central Australia, catering to Indigenous Australians. But Professor Fred Hollows was not in Nepal to look at cataracts. He was working on trachoma. What is interesting to me is he was doing work on trachoma. He came into this space. He saw and talked to you about the fact that the big issues were cataracts, yeah. and, he, and he changed his focus. He did. He did. He did. How important was listening to his work? You know, he was exceptional in uh, uh, in numbers. Uh, he was very good in epidemiology. We call it that epidemiology, really. Uh, but, I mean, the fact that he listened to you, not everyone listens, right? Of course. You know, some people have a plan and they just want to roll it out. But yeah. Fred Hollis didn't seem to do that. No. Why do you think he listened to you? I don't know. I don't know, but there is, uh, you know, he. There were certain uh, um, uh, certain feelings that I got that this man is genuinely interested in listening to me. 
Almost immediately, something clicked. Even in the car on the way back from the airport, Professor Hollows and Dr Ruitt got talking. Soon, they were plotting. For the first time in his life, Dr Ruitt found someone who was interested in hearing all the frustrations that he was having treating cataracts. The lack of equipment for doctors doing the surgery, the lack of training in the technique, and the prohibitive cost of the lenses that would actually make the surgery just as good as what was happening as standard practice in the West. Professor Hollows invited Dr Ruitt to come and check out his practice in Sydney and also to see their mobile surgery in Central Australia. There, they kept chatting. Fred and I uh, used to sit over a glass of whiskey in the evening and uh, we used to sort of think about uh, the, how we could do the intraocular lens surgery in a developing country when there is no other resources. What microscopes to use? How much the microscope is going to cost? How much the lens is going to be cost? What fluid do we use to wash the cataract? Are the fluids that are available in, in the present time, are they safe enough? What are the results are going to be? What needle to use? How can we do that for 50 cases? How can we do that for 100 cases? So all those questions we started asking to ourselves. It started consuming Dr. Rubert's life. When I started, I started dreaming about the surgical procedures. You know, I started really, and, and then I used to recollect how the steps of the surgery that I was thinking about and started coming into my dreams. So it was very interesting. Eventually, it was time for Dr. Ruitt to go back to Nepal. Fred gave me a couple of intraocular lenses to take back. I think it was about 40 intraocular lenses. Fred and Ruitt set up an organisation called Nepal Eye Programme Australia. And uh, that uh, raised the first $150 that I could uh, buy some instruments with that. So armed with 40 lenses and the right equipment to do the surgery, Dr. Ruitt headed back to Nepal. Two things I realised. I knew I had to work very hard. I had to fight with the establishment and I had to uh, come out with a very smart uh, system that the world was going to believe. No biggie. Reinvent eye surgery in the global south while fighting the existing medical system. The first thing he had to do was work out how to refine the surgical equipment so that it could be used in a mobile setup without the fancy luxuries you get in an operating theatre. So we uh, started uh, with a very small team. We started doing mobile um, surgeries, you know, uh, carrying our own microscope, small, different types of microscope, practicing with different different places, and uh, donated intraocular lenses, and switches, and uh, other resource materials, and uh, doing hundred there, seventy there, and you know, and then you know, refining on the technique. It was the same method that a Silicon Valley startup might use. Launch, learn, then iterate. Eventually, Dr. Ruit felt he'd perfected the technique. So I said, uh, Fred, I've uh, done about 200 cases of very successful uh, extra cab with intraocular lens implantation, and the results look fantastic, he said. So um, uh, where did you do it, he said, in eye cams. So if that's a shit, then I must come and look at it. A few weeks later, Professor Hollows arrived and asked to see the new techniques being used. I had to demonstrate to him uh, about 150 cases. He saw how the surgeries were been done and, and he saw the results. And uh, the second day, we were, I tell you, we were, um, uh, we were drinking the whole night. It was a triumph, but there was a problem. By now, the medical establishment had gotten wind of what Professor Hollows and Dr Ruitt had been doing in Nepal. And they weren't impressed. 
They thought Fred and Dr Ruitt were endangering their patients by setting up mobile clinics rather than using established operating theatres. In short, they thought Hollows and Ruitt were a couple of cowboys. It was decided that all the major players in eye surgery would meet in Nepal to nut it out. The who's and who of ophthalmology, I call them mafias, you know. They came and attended the meeting, all big shots from America, from WHO, from IAPP, from India, from Pakistan, from Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. Uh, presentations were made on 1,000 cases of successful intracapsular surgery. That was the old-fashioned surgery that left people ridiculously long-sighted, a method that had already been superseded in the West by intraocular surgery. 2,000 cases. And uh, the uh, chairman of IAPB, who was an American, said this is a time-tested, successful method. We should continue to follow this. Then Dr Ruit got up to present his new method that left people with much better sight. And there we stand, Fred and I stand, we present 150 cases of intraocular lenses done in the bush. And this was not accepted. We were virtually made to a sideline as an outlaw. In essence, the medical establishment was saying that change was not possible, that the global south would just have to put up with second-rate outcomes. It was a devastating blow. Back in a moment. This podcast is supported by the Fred Hollows Foundation. Four out of five people who are blind don't need to be. Over the years, Fred Hollows has restored the sight of more than two million people. In some countries, they can do it for as little as $25. To me, Dr Hollow is not only a lifesaver, but he's also, in many ways, a father figure. Because he allowed me to understand that there's no boundary to um, help. This is a foreign Australian doctor that had helped me and changed my life. We could do so much more in each other and we are not bound by our nationality or our race. Donate today at hollows.org. At the Global Conference of Eye Surgeons in Nepal, Dr. Ruit and Professor Hollows had been told that their new, safer form of surgery that restored sight and meant patients weren't required to use unwieldy thick glasses for the rest of their lives had not been adopted as the new standard. Fred Hollows could not accept that. He got up and, and then said, uh, you guys must listen that right now, uh, WHO, who is providing thick glasses in the back of surgery, will one day put an intraocular lens in that. The problem was, before they could spread their methods to other countries and train surgeons in their new technique, they needed the medical establishment behind them. I had to virtually write papers in international journals and gather a lot of other friends and international ophthalmic community, invite a lot of other people to come and watch what I was doing and uh, convince people that this was correct. So you had to train yeah. the people above you yeah. before you could train definitely. the surgeons oh, who could put out... Oh. Definitely, definitely, definitely. This was, uh, this was hardly accepted. Slowly, the tide of opinion started shifting in their favour. The evidence was undeniable, but that wasn't their only problem. In many ways, they had a bigger problem. The intraocular lens, crucial to the surgery, was expensive. When we started uh, at that time, uh, the intraocular lenses used to cost about $150 to $200. Why was that a problem, that they costed $150? Uh, you know, uh, doing, uh, um, spending $150 to $200 per case 
uh, was uh, it would be impossible for us to make it as a make as a public health program uh, impossible to uh, use that for um, most of the patients we could only do that for a few patients who could pay for it and there were just handfuls in other words it was great that professor hollows was able to source some lenses from australia for the trial and they'd managed to get a few more from donations here and there but it would bankrupt any third world health system to provide those lenses themselves Until they could reduce the cost of the lenses, affordable eye surgery would remain the preserve of the very rich and the very lucky in the global south. Hardly a basis for a public health system. But Fred Hollows had a solution. Rather than importing expensive Western lenses, why not set up a factory in Nepal? According to Dr Ruit, Fred talked about it incessantly. He could see that it was the only lasting solution. His plan was to build factories in Eritrea and Nepal to radically reduce the cost of the lenses. Fred raised money from fellow Australians and work started on building the factories. Unfortunately, before he could see either factory built or hold one of the intraocular lenses in his hand, Fred Hollows passed away. It was now up to his successor, Dr Ruit, and the growing team around him to make Fred's vision come to life. So it was for us to look at the bricks and walls and the equipments and everything. So it was very difficult, very difficult going through uh, the intricacies of technology and one technology not working and we're bringing another technology, so it was a hell of a difficult thing. A year after Fred Hollows died, the first factory came into operation. The first year when we started manufacturing about 30,000 lenses a year, the cost of the lenses were uh, $15 for one. The second year, we started manufacturing about 50,000 a uh, year. The cost of the lenses would come down to about $7. And uh, fourth year onwards, when we were starting to manufacture about 200,000 a year, the cost of the lenses had come down to $4. Oh, my God. At that price, the lenses were truly accessible. They could be distributed to the entire world. Back when Dr Ruit and Professor Hollows were imagining a factory for lenses, they were also trying to work out how to solve the other major issue. How do you roll out a new surgical method across the entire global south? Second story, a very important story, is training lots of people, lots of good doctors and technicians to conduct this uh, in other parts of the world. The problem was that in country after country that Fred and Dr Ruit visited, they came up against a medical establishment stuck in their ways of doing surgery, ways that were often imported from much richer countries. Just before he died, Professor Fred Hollows made a commitment to train 300 Vietnamese surgeons. But there was a problem. Fred was very sick and had been hospitalised. So he checked himself out of hospital and travelled to Vietnam with Dr Ruit. Those days, um, the Vietnamese, they believed... Uh, in using uh, the French PACS, French system. The French system used actually an American ophthalmic PACS, very expensive, uh, you know, disposable PACS that they thought to do an intraocular lens surgery, they thought that was one of the mandatory things to do because that's that's what the French had taught them. And using those PACS was very expensive. One PAC for a patient would probably cost you about $1,000 per patient. They had two days to convince a group of sceptical doctors that his techniques were the way to go. We had to first convince that our technique is correct. So demonstrating a couple of surgeries uh, in the first half, 
And uh, then, uh, you know, using the same disposable packs, we didn't want to hurt them. And slowly, by lunchtime, we gathered a little bit of confidence from them in terms of what we were doing. So we were using part of the disposable packs, part we were using non-disposable packs. And what my strategy was, let them see the post-op results tomorrow. Then you'll have them in your hand. One of the surgeons that Professor Hollows trained was Dr. Fan Bing. He said that one of the things they emphasised was the sheer quantity of surgeries you could do with this new technique. He said that with the old technique, a surgeon could perform around 10 cases per day because it takes about 30 minutes to do a case, to do one operation. While the new technique, with the new technique, an ophthalmologist could perform around 30 cases per day and it takes them around 10 minutes for each case. Dr Ruit and Professor Hollows decided the best way to teach this was by doing. So when about 50 cases we did that day, and for them that was a very big number. Uh, they would never see, and um, you know, anybody coming from outside, experts coming from outside, they would probably do five or six cases per day. And uh, that kind of number was, and so they were saying, you know, we still have to see the you know, results the complications and results and, you know, and the, the, these will be very expensive and very com- there will be a lot of complications. So anyway, the next day when the patients were seen, and luckily um, most of the patients had very good result and uh, they were totally taken back by the results. So we had them in our, uh, really. So we started doing the way we wanted now. We started virtually using non-disposables and using and showing them that it is possible to use a cost-effective, appropriate technology and still deliver competitively better result than you expect. It sounds, the method sounds, it has such showmanship. Yeah. You you could do five, you do 50 operations. Was was that part of how you were able to make this radical change, do you think? You know, we had to lobby. We had to lobby and we had to demonstrate that uh, it is powerful, it could do better, it could do more. And, uh, you know, we, we started as underdogs. The demonstration left a lasting impact on Dr Bin, but Professor Hollows knew it would fail if all he did was teach the new technique. So, when Fred Hollows came to Vietnam, he not only changed the technique, but he also set up a training system for doctors. Is that is that right? Yes, absolutely. When Fred Hollows came to Vietnam, he didn't have much time left because of his illness, so he aimed to create 20 new doctor trainers. And he wanted to set up the training system so that the Vietnamese trainers could train others. How many surgeons have you personally trained, Dr Ben? So I personally trained around 50 surgeons. And remember, each of those surgeons has in turn brought eyesight to literally thousands of people. That's a lot of happiness being created. Even though I've done 1,000 or 2,000 cases, the 2,000th case still brings the same feelings of ecstasy. There was one time when I operated on one man. He was blind for so many years and after the operation I followed him back to his home. But he wouldn't go into his house immediately. He just went around touching everything. He touched the cow, he touched the bricks and everything. Because all he could do before was touch. But now he wanted to touch and see at the same time. So Dr Ruit spread this technique to Vietnam and then Pakistan, India, as well as other countries across Africa. 
building a lens factory in Eritrea and training surgeons how to train other surgeons along the way. How many surgeons have you personally trained? I think um, now uh, from people who have been, uh, you know, sitting closely with me for a few days to spending a few months, you know, but there must be uh, more than a thousand. My understanding is that it's more than that. More than that, yeah. I mean, what's really nice is, uh, you know, I don't know what um, uh, would you call this, but uh, we, had a, we had a French doctor uh, who was in Marche, and he came to uh, Tilganga to learn the system. And he was there for three months. And uh, he learned the whole package and took it back to uh, the French-speaking Africa. And uh, he went on to train more than 600 African doctors. Not only that, but he's, he has institutionalized the system in the university in Cameroon. This is just an instance of how uh, these are scalable, how they are replicable. I think these are very, you know, Amala, these are very powerful, very, very powerful. They do nothing except good for a large number of people. When you hear visionary stories, so often the logistics of how something was achieved gets brushed aside as the shining outcome becomes the point of focus. The wonderful thing about this story is that it's all about the practicalities. Sanduk Root and Fred Hollows took the world as it is and shaped it into what it should be using techniques that could be applied to any problem. Changing the surgical technique localised the way of doing things, making their method superior to the existing system. Reducing the cost of the lenses minimised reliance on Western benevolence. And training the trainers allowed their revolution to scale up and spread rapidly across the globe, bringing sight to millions of people. But above all, it allowed them to harness the biggest resource available to them, the local talent. A more showy approach might have missed the details, but the transformation was in the details. The wasteful use of disposable equipment, the unsuitable surgical techniques imported from the West, and the arrogance of the medical elites who were happy for substandard outcomes to be the norm for those poorer than themselves. Well, I mean, Fred, my understanding is, used to talk about teach a man to fish rather than give him fish and you feed him forever. Yeah, He he said that uh, we have taken that further. We teach them how to sell the fishes and make money out of it and buy more fishing rods. <laughs> and this is, this is where the eye care is, is, a, is a great business model. Yeah. And it achieves radical change. It is. It does. It does. Because people can see. It does. It does. It does. How many people do you think that, this, that Fred Hollows' work and your work, how many people do you think can see because of that now? I mean, you know, the basic, straightforward, uh, uh, I would say, um, uh, is, uh, uh, you know, between us and uh, Asmara, we may have produced about 8 million uh, intraocular lenses. That's just the basic. uh, And, uh, you know, on top of that, maybe a few more millions. The Fred Hollows Foundation is continuing Fred's work 25 years later, training doctors, nurses and health workers around the world. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Carolyn Pegram and Catherine Freeney. Written by Charles Firth. Our researchers are Tessa Sparks, Iona Rennie and Amy Farrell. Sound editing by Molika Bin and Jules Wookera. Our audio producers are Uncanny Valley. Our theme music is by Justin Shave. Our launch partner 
is Mobilisation Lab. Our sponsoring organisations are Australia for UNHCR, getup.org.au, the Fred Hollows Foundation, Sydney Democracy Network and the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. Listener.